We're going to try to discuss the Sikha of Lukut Sikhas, volume 15, Bereshis. Um, the Sikha of the naming of the animals by Adam, Adam Harishon. It's Bereshis, volume 15, Sikha number three. So the discussion is that there was uh, a discussion between Hashem and the Malach and the angels. What are you so excited about, Adam, about man? This seems to be a recurring theme between God and the angels, as we see later in the Sikha. Uh, God is very excited about man. And the angels say, like, what's man? What's a big deal? He's a little guy. You know, the angels are, are spiritual beings on an extraordinary level of intellect, of emotion, sometimes described as almost infinite level of intellect and emotion because they're bodiless. So there's nothing holding them back. Whereas a human being is a, is a, is a limited being. Maybe smart, maybe he's creative, but he's limited. Like, what's the big deal? And God is all excited. Like, you know, if you can try to envision, God is telling the angels, aha, look what I created, this man, Adam, Chava, they're going to, they're fantastic. So what's the big deal? So God says to the angels, I want to tell you something. You're not impressed with him. He's smarter than you. He's got greater wisdom than you, greater chachma than you. How so? How do you illustrate it? He says to the angels, I want you to name the animals. Name the animals. They couldn't do it. They couldn't come up with names. Then he says to Adam, Name the animals, and he named the animals. He says, this one should be called Shor Ox, this one should be called Hamar Donkey, etc., etc. He named all the animals. God said, look, look how brilliant. That is the Medrash. So, clearly, this can't be that Adam's wisdom is that he named them random names. That he just decided to call one a Shor and one a Hamar, Ox, Donkey, um, etc., just randomly, because then it's not wisdom. Then the angels could have done it themselves. That they couldn't come up with names. So it's explained from the Holy Shalot that the naming of the animals actually represents uh, revealing their divine spiritual energy within them. We know that a name of everything represents a spiritual energy, and it's brought down in great detail. And from Tanya, from the Alta Rebbe, Shari Yichud Vamuna, that every, every name, the letters of that name spell out the energy. So if an axe is called Shor, Shin, Babresh, somehow the shapes of those letters and the energy of those letters spell out the animal. An example, by the way, a dog is called Kelev. It's brought down by way of example that Kelev is Kulolev. It means it's all heart. For good and bad, we learn loyalty from dogs. They're very emotional based. So the, the name of, of every animal, and by extension, really, the name of everything is the godly letter. So when Adam was able to name the animals, this is brilliant. This means that he knows how to identify the divine spirit, the spiritual source of each animal. That's wisdom. It wasn't random at all. Because if it was random, that wouldn't be wisdom. But then the Rebbe says, if that's the case, that Adam's wisdom is that he's able to identify the spiritual source of the animals, why can't the angels identify it? The angels are much more spiritual. If you're trying to tell me what's going on on high, in heaven, in the heavenly source of the animal, the angels are in heaven, Adam is on earth. So this doesn't make any sense that Adam knows it, and they don't. Really, if you look at it even more accurately, not only are the angels closer to the source of the animals on heaven because they're in heaven, the angels are actually the source of the animals. As we say in our prayer every day before the blessings of the Shema, we describe the angels and their service of God, and we refer to them, some of them, as chayos Kodish, holy animals. They are, you know, the animals on steroids, the animals on high. But the, if you want to know what an animal looks like, magnified heavenly, it's angels. And from them is actually derived ultimately through many levels of derivation, devolution, if you will, from one world to the next, 
the animals that we know. So the angels are much closer to the spiritual source of the animals. In fact, they are the spiritual source of the animals. So how does this make sense that Adam didn't know it and they didn't? So then the red presents a third possibility. It can't be that his wisdom, because he came up with random names, it can't be that his wisdom is that he knew the heavenly source and they didn't, because how is that possible? They're much closer. They are the source. Aha. Maybe the third possibility is that uh, they knew the heavenly source, but they didn't know how to translate it into physical because they're not physical. Whereas he's physical, so he can translate it. If that's the case, then it's hardly a compliment to him. It actually means he, he is able to give the names not because he has greater chokhmah, greater wisdom, greater spirituality, but because he's lowlier. So that wouldn't be this conversation. And the conversation is God is complimenting that. He's saying, look how brilliant. He's got a great chokhmah. He's a higher, he's greater than you guys. No, he's not. If the idea is that he can explain it to a lower level, like, you know, you're trying to reach something on the lowest shelf. The tall guy can't reach it, so the little guy can reach it. That's not because he's greater, because he's smaller. The Adam is able to bring it down because he's in the physical. But that can't be the meaning of that debate, of that conversation, because that wouldn't be a compliment. And clearly God is complimenting Adam and he's telling the angels he's greater than you. So the Rebbe explains it the following fashion. That Adam's greatness is that he's able to connect the spiritual to the physical. The, the, um, he's able to not just identify somehow the spiritual source of every animal on high, but he's able to bring it down and actually manifest it in the physical animal. And this is special. This is unique. Why is it unique? Because there's a great gap between the spiritual and the physical. And even if someone is able to bring the spiritual down from one level to the next, to the next, to the next, ultimately it will never cross over into the physical. And here, Adam is doing exactly that. Cassidus explains that we know that there's three worlds, by example, right? Um, uh, after God's world of Atsilos, there's Brio, Yitzir, Asir, the three spiritual realms, and each one is a lower level of spirituality, and one evolves from the other and lower and lower and lower. By way of analogy, if there's a great, brilliant teacher, who knows how to explain something and bring it down from one level to the next to the next? It's brilliance. In fact, it says that King Solomon was able to give 3,000 analogies for his ideas. And it's explained why the number 3,000, because his wisdom was from the world of Atsilus, from God's wisdom. And he brought it down these three worlds, Berea, Yitzir, Asir. Each world is 10 sephirah multiplied by 10. And really, it's squared by 10 as well in some countings. So there's 1,000 on each. 3,000 analogies, one over the over the other. So these lofty ideas, brilliant, Solomonic concepts, divine concepts, if you will. He's able to bring them from the spirituality of the highest realm to the next realm, to the next realm, to the next realm, down to the simple student down here, which is a fantastic concept. This is what we call the shtalshalos, the chain reaction of one world to the next. And we're told that all... Uh, energy that creates the world, that illuminates and, and, and invigorates the world comes from these higher realms, and then they come down through the chain reaction from one world to the next. However, by using the example of King Solomon, let's say King Solomon is trying to explain a very lofty concept, and he's able to bring it down lower, 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 3,000 times over, so that a little child or a simple person can literally get it. But it's not going to turn into a physical object. Let's say he's explaining a lofty spiritual idea, and he explains it by finally bringing it down to a, it's a rock. It's a physical stone. It's a piece of wood. It's a table. 
He really knew how to bring it down, but it's not going to become a physical table. I don't care how many analogies you give, you're still stuck in the realm of the spiritual. You just watered it down or you funneled it down from one level of spiritual to the other, and it becomes simpler and simpler and more mundane, but it's not going to become a table. It's not going to become a tangible physicality. The bridge between spiritual and physical is a quantum leap, and that's something that's what we call Yeshmiyayin, something from nothing, and that is God's domain. Says the Rebbe, you want to understand what the complementary conversation that God was saying about Adam, about the man. It's not just that he could understand the source, because the angels clearly can as well, perhaps better. It's not just that he can define the place down here where it will be manifest, because that may not be a complement. That could be just because he's found in the lowest world. But it's actually because he's able to bridge the two to the point that the spiritual will actually translate into physical and become an ox and become a donkey and become a physical animal roaming the field. That bridge from spiritual to physical is, 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 is almost a, a divine possibility. And how is he able to do it? Because man is called Adam, which means Adam Elion in the image of the creator or likeness of his creator. Man is made of two parts, a physical body made of the dust of the earth from the lowest. On the other hand, a soul, which is uh, in the image of a God, and therefore he is really bridging these two places of physicality and spirituality and able to bridge that normally unbridgeable gap. And therefore, as great as the angels are, they're very lofty. Maybe they're as talented as Solomon and they can bring it down, but they'll never make it the physical Adam Curry. That's a huge compliment. It's a quantum leap. He explained it brought it down, brought it down until it became a physical. It became an ox. It became a physical thing, and that is a fantastic. That is the first teaching of the Sikh. Based on this, the Rebbe points out that um, we see that the angels can't do this from the fact that it's known that the angels ask God in a different conversation when he was excited about man, and the people were sitting, this is later, before the flood, people were sinning, and the angels were very unimpressed. He said to God, look at mankind. You were so excited about mankind. Eh, he's messing up. He's doing terrible things. And in fact, the flood did come after that period. So the conversation is that God said to the angels, if you were living on earth and you had their temptations and their free choice, you'd be far worse than them. So the angels said, test us. So God brought angels down to earth. They became the worst human beings that ever walked this planet. They're referred to in the end of the portion of Horatius as in the Philim which we translate as giants, but really Nephilim means the fallen ones because they fell down, so to speak, from heaven and they became humans and they couldn't handle themselves. These giant beings, they were tested with free choice, etc. Because I guess they're angels, they don't have the divine quality of uh, being able to bridge the lofty and the mundane and they failed every test. They did disgusting things. Apparently some of them became some of the giants that we talk about later that waged war against the Jewish people, what have you. But it wasn't a pretty picture at all. So angels are great but they can't function in the physical. Humans are greater because they have a divine attribute and they're able to be in a human body, in a physical, and therefore Adam is only the one that was able to bridge this. It's interesting, I gave this class today in my local community and somebody asked the question, if angels can't be in the physical body, how come we have stories of angels appearing to Moses and to Joshua and to Jacob, et cetera, et cetera, and the mother of Samson, all in a physical body? And my understanding is, and in those cases, the angels did not become human. They were just using the body. The body was given to them as a tool so that they can be seen by people and communicate with people. But they didn't become the body. The body didn't later need to be buried. The angels just flew away. 
the body was just a, a, a facade or an illusion or what have you uh, for the purpose of, of, of the people around them. But if an angel becomes human, it, it's, gonna, it's not going to work, as we saw by the giants. Humans can do this. And that's also, says the Rebbe, why we say that God said to the angels, his wisdom is greater than yours. When you use the word wisdom, we use the word chokhmah. There are different terms for wisdom. We could say bina, we could say das. Chokhmah refers to a concept, as, as the Mishnah says, who is a chokham? One who sees the future, who sees consequences. But Chassidus explains that the, the verbiage is precise. What does it mean to be really a chokham? What does it mean, the attribute of chokhmah, of wisdom per se, that he sees that which is born? Translation, he recognizes that the world is something from nothing constantly. That's what it means to be a person, to be a chokham, to have the attribute of chokhmah, which is often also a bitl nullification, humility. And the person sees the world and recognizes that it's not just here. It's constantly being recreated. And therefore, Adam is told, the angels are told that Adam has great chokhmah. Translation, he has great wisdom. He has this attribute, that he's able to recognize the bridge from nothing to something. And in fact, he's able to, so to speak, duplicate that in a sense, or enact it as God's agent by infusing the names and the godly energy, the spiritual energy into each animal. Therefore, the Rebbe says, if you look in the story, when God asked Adam, Adam to name the animals, it was after he put him in the Garden of Eden. The language is to work the garden and to guard the garden. This wasn't just a nice uh, exercise. You know, Adam, you know, you have nothing to do. Come, give me some names. No, it was part of his mission. He was put into the garden. And he was given a job to, to tend to that garden, which obviously was the beginning of his avoda, his service in fulfilling the godly mission for which man is created. There were some setbacks later on. He was set out of the garden, but it doesn't matter. But the concept being that he was given a mission. And one of the things he did in that garden, in that mission, was name the animals. Because that's only a human can do that. The angels can't. And namely, to what? To divine, bring down this spiritual energy into the physical. And it should actually touch down the physical. A human has that ability because he is a combination of heaven and earth, and he can bridge them both. That's the first part of the secret. Then the Rebbe comes and says, you know what? Come to think of it, there's another famous conversation that God has with the angels vis-a-vis -vis mine. And that happens two and a half thousand years later, before Sinai. And Moses comes up to get the Torah, and the angels say to God, why is he here? He's just a man born of flesh and blood, and, and God says he came to get the Torah. You're giving him the Torah. The most precious thing that's pre-creation, that's God's wisdom, you're giving it to him, a fallible human being, frail human beings born today and gone tomorrow. You look Isha, a man born from a woman, like, why would you do this? So God asked Moses to answer, and Moses answered the objection, and there's a whole discussion about it separate and apart. But we see there too that um, there was an objection from the angels, and God defended man, or in that case, not just man in general, but the Jewish people specifically, uh, that only they are the ones that are able to get the Torah. Part of the discussion is that Moses says to them, you want the Torah? You don't have an evil inclination. You don't have to work, so you have to rest on Shabbos. You don't have an evil inclination that will have jealousy and envy and theft. You don't have parents that you have to honor. You don't have any of these weaknesses, human weaknesses that we have, and therefore you don't need the Torah. As the Rebbe explains elsewhere, uh, in that uh, this is really 
an answer to their question. Torah, the miracle of Torah, is to bridge God with the world. And therefore, a human being is able to do that because the human being is in the body and he has an evil inclination and he has to work and he has to make a living and he can be greed and envy and all these worldly things. And at the same time, he has an Hashem, a part of Hashem, and he's able to bridge it. You guys want the Torah? What are you going to do with the Torah? Not just you don't need the practical laws. You don't need the concept of Torah, which is to break the barrier and bring heaven down to earth because you're not uh, tempted and tested with earthly challenges. Says the Rebbe, let's compare these two conversations. They seem to be saying the same thing. The first moments of creation when God tells, is, is excited about Adam and Eve. And he says to the angels and the angels say, what's the big deal? He says, what do you mean? He's brilliant. He's got because he's able to name the animals. And we explain what does it mean? He can bridge the gap between heaven and earth, between the spiritual source of the animal and the physical animal. That's fantastic. We got it. Two and a half thousand years later, they come up with the same conversation. And it's the same answer. Because we know how to bridge the gap. What is Sinai? To break the barrier between heaven and earth. The famous analogy, the pre-Sinai, it's like a king who had two countries and no one was allowed to go from one to the next. And similarly, uh, humans weren't able to touch heaven and vice versa. And through Sinai, heaven touches down on a physical scroll from an animal high becomes holy Torah, becomes the filling, and every mitzvah becomes holy, etc. It's the same conversation. Adam knows that the name of the animals, he breaks the gap between heaven and earth. And that's what happened at Sinai. So why are the angels coming back for more? You know, everybody can appreciate a good negotiating partner, a good negotiating opponent. Someone negotiates a good deal, you got it. You, you negotiate back and you come up with a settlement. But if they come back the next day with the same conversation that is negotiating again, that's not nice. That's chutzpah. We already went through this. We dealt with it. Similarly here, God had this conversation with them and he pointed out that Adam is fantastic. So why would they come again at Sinai with a new debate? Says that it's not a new debate. It's a whole new, it's a, it's a whole new step. When he was naming the animals. He was connecting the animals, the physical animal, with their spiritual source. At Sinai, is connecting the physical world with God. It's not the same. God is not spiritual. God is the creator of the spirit. When he's naming the animals, he's connecting them. He's connecting, let's call it, earth with heaven. But heaven is not God. Heaven is a creation. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Heaven is wonderful, it's the source. When we speak heaven and Torah, we don't just mean the sky that you see. When you look up, we mean the spiritual realms. Bria, Yitzira, Asiya, what have you. So at the beginning of the conversation, the beginning of Torah, when Adam is naming the animals, he's connecting physical animals with their heavenly source, with their spiritual source. He's pointing out that the animal here has a source in heaven, the angels. And it's manifest in giving energy and translating to 3,000 levels, whatever. And the animal can walk and do what it has to do as an animal. And it's a reflection of that spiritual source. Fantastic. But that's all it did. It didn't connect beyond creation. It connected the lofty spiritual levels of creation to the physical manifestation of creation. Which is still a huge accomplishment because it, it went over the bridge from spiritual to physical. But it didn't go over the bridge from divine, from creator to created. Creation. That was Sinai. That was Sinai. It was a whole new level. That uh, in Sinai, we, we break this barrier and um, we don't bring heaven to earth, we bring Hashem to earth. We don't bring spiritual to illuminate the physicality. We bring God Himself into the physical. It's a whole different thing. 
you know, when someone is a child and they're not well-versed, they think of an airplane and a rocket ship as the same thing. They both lift up the ground. But it's a whole different conversation. An airplane is great. You know, when the Wright brothers were able to fly, you know, 20 feet, they probably could already envision, you know, a 747 jet flying uh, over the ocean, 30,000 feet up in the air. Because in concept, it's the same. A little lower, a little higher. But a rocket ship, which defies gravity, which breaks the sound barrier and totally goes into a different place, that's, that, that's nothing to do with an airplane. It's a whole different business. It's, it's breaking out the boundaries of, of creation of Earth as we know it, so to speak. I'm just using my way of analogy. Similarly, Adam and Eve are able to, to connect a very lofty spiritual down here. They're able to land that plane. That's Sinai. You're talking about a rocket. You're talking about connecting to pure infinity, to Hashem himself. Not to Bria, Yitzira, angels, lofty angels, holy animals, Chayos HaKodesh. None of that. God. God's will, God's wisdom is in Torah. And you touch it and you feel it every time you light a Shabbos lift and you make a bracha and you eat kosher food, you put on film and you touch a mezuzah. This is divine. It's not spirituality. It's way be, it's infinity. So there's the same conversation, but a whole new level. You made an airplane. No, -uh. now you're making a rocket ship. It's a whole different ballgame. So this becomes the second part of the sikha. And, and this is already very, very valuable stuff, explaining to us, the human being, and the yid, atem kriyam adam, you were referred to as man, unquote, that our role is pivotal, even though we're very small, we're, we're a tiny being, and we live very short lives at the end of the day. We should all have a rikhas yom, and chayim nitzchim, till mashiach, and beyond. But the reality is that, uh, you know, first say we're very small. Comes along Torah and says, are you kidding me? You are the ones to bring heaven to earth. And you are the ones that bring God. And in both cases, God defends man against the angels, etc. Got it. And that's why these are so instructive, not just to learn the pshat, the meaning of the medrash, but it's so instructive to explain man's role. If the angels didn't object and didn't ask these questions, we would never have this information, so to speak. Angels are... Well, we can envision the loftiest minds, the loftiest beings, the loftiest creations, if you can envision. And, and they are humbled by man and by a yid for these two reasons. Bringing heaven to earth, spirituality to physical, and bringing God to physical, to the earth. So then the Rebbe continues in the Sikha and does something fantastic, which is often done in the Rebbe Sikhas and explains this on the micro, not just on the macro, but on the micro. That this can be, in the language of the Rebbe, in our own personal service. You know, there's a fantastic bumper sticker that you see around. Think globally, act locally. Everybody likes to think global. You're gonna change the world, you're gonna make peace in the whole world. But there's something called think globally and act locally. Do something good right now, do one mitzvah, Spread goodness and kindness, as the Rebbe said, locally, because that's your real contribution to the picture. So the Rebbe does that here. The Rebbe says, we just presented two conversations of the angels with God vis-a-vis -vis man. Two different breaking of the barriers, the analogy that I'm giving of the airplane and the analogy of the rocket ship, connecting heaven to earth, connecting God to earth. What does it mean in my personal Aveda? How do I act locally on it every single day? So, 
So, um, so the Rebbe is going to explain that these two columns in our own personal Veda, we all have our inner animal, which is the Nefesh Bahamas, the animal soul. And there's two steps we should do with that animal. Step number one is connect it to its spiritual source. What's the spiritual source of the human animal, the Nefesh Bahamas? The angels. Much like the, the animals that are grazing in the field, they also come from those angels. The Nefesh Bahamas, the, the animal soul, it too, its source is the angels on high. So that's one step of our avoid of our personal service vis-a-vis -vis manifesting this naming process of bringing heaven to earth, bring our spiritual source, uh, the animals on high, the angels, to have a relationship or identify with our human animal, our Nefesh Bahamas. And the second step is going to be that our animal soul should not just identify with the great animal on high, its source, but actually with the divine soul, with Hashem itself. And how through? Connecting through the divine soul. Our animal soul should identify with our divine soul. What are these two steps in, in Avoid in practical terms? So the first step is, the Rebbe explains that it's brought down the Alter Rebbe, that when we do our daily davening, before we say the Shema, there's a whole section describing the Avaida, the service of the angels in detail. And there are loftier angels and lesser angels, Seraphim and Ophanim, holy animals, and they're proclaiming God's name in unison, and it's gorgeous and it's beautiful. You envision this gorgeous philharmonic, infinite numbers of angels, and it's perfection. Why why do we spend so much time on that? Like it's nice, but why is that relevant? You know, my kid's going to, to, to take a violin lesson. I have to make him listen to the philharmonic so he can feel inadequate. What's the point? Hasidus talks about this in numerous places. One of the explanations is given, in fact, I believe in Tanya itself, that uh, this is an introduction to the next blessing right before the Shema, which is Ahava Salomon that we say that God loves us, that even though the angels are so perfect. They're singing in unison. It's a gigantic philharmonic of an infinite number of angels in various camps, you know, countless camps, and everything is a perfection. Angels don't make any mistakes. And you and I are sitting there, and we're reading about this, and we're supposed to be praising Hashem, where our thoughts go floating and fleeting and running, and we can't even pronounce the words half the time. And, and so how could our service matter? And then we say, after describing how great and perfect they are, aha, but the eternal love you have for us. Because we are your children. The angels are great, they're perfect, they're, they're your servants. But we are your children. We prefer our children to our to our perfect employees. We prefer our imperfect children infinitely more so than our perfect employees because we don't want perfection from our kids. We want them because they're our kids. And that is a fantastic meditation that's brought in Tanya. And when you say that before the Shema, when you come to the Shema, you feel the love for Hashem because love is reciprocal. If he loves me in spite of my in, 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 inadequacy, I'm going to return that love. That's not in the Sikha, that's the classic Tanya on that section. But in the Sikha, he brings, I believe, from the Tehra, from the Al discourses, where he gives a different explanation of what we gain from the discussion, the meditation of the angel service of Hashem, and how they proclaim Hashem's holiness every day before we come to the Shema. And what is it? We talk to the animal soul. Each of us is a mixed bag of both souls. But there's an animal soul, the self-indulgent, the part of us that wants pleasure. We don't see the animal soul of a yid as evil, but it's self-indulgent, it's selfish. It wants what feels good. And we want it to join the love of Hashem. We want it, to, when you say the Shema, we should be able to say, 
you should love Hashem with all your heart, not with one heart, with both, both souls, both hearts, the Yetzirah and the Yetzirah. So even the animal soul, the part of us that, you know what I mean, that we feel, that enjoys, you know, the sushi, and enjoys um, physical success, that enjoys ambition, whatever it is, that human part of us, that animalistic self, that too should join the train and get into the davening so that we should love Hashem with the animal. We want to talk to the animal. We want to get the animal excited. The animal is not interested in Hashem. Hashem is idealism. It's truth. The animal is into pleasure. Give me my sushi. I don't know. You want to give me God? What does that mean to me? The godly soul loves Hashem because that's what it loves. It loves truth. The animal. So the Al-Tarebbe explains in that before we come to the Shema, we talk about the supernal animals. And they are the spiritual source of the animal down here. It's almost like when you were in yeshiva and they wanted to inspire you to learn Torah, they would tell you, your grandfather, your father, when he was in yeshiva, he studied so great. Sometimes it works because it tells you, you know, you, you think you can do it. You could do it. Your father did it. Your grandfather did it. And you inspire someone on their own terms. Uh, similarly, we tell the animal soul, you, you, you think you know what pleasure is. Physical food, physical money, physical COVID, whatever it is that talks to the, the egotistical pleasure-based animal soul that we all possess. We say, listen, Mr. Animal Soul, you want to know what's really gishmak? You want to know what your great-grandfather in heaven, the giant soul, soul on steroids, the soul with the, you know, the magnifying glass, what they love and what makes them crazy and what they stream, Kadosh, Hashem, he's the most gishmak. We're not speaking idealism. We're speaking uh, almost self-centered. We're speaking what feels good. You're an animal. You want to have, you want to have a good gishmak? Connect to Hashem. Really? God is gishmak? Animal says, I, my animal says, I want physical stuff. Eh, this is cheap. Look what the animals on high from where your animal soul derived and what drives them crazy. They're screaming in a philomonic perfection. Hashem's greatness. They get it. It's almost like somebody is enjoying a good meal and somebody says, come listen to this piece of music or look at this fine art. It's more refined, but ultimately the pleasure can be much greater. Multiply that over and over and over until you come to Lahavdal to appreciate the greatness of Hashem. The angels on high, the animals, they're animals. They're, they're created beings. They're not nothing before Hashem. They are existed beings. And what is their pleasure? There's nothing greater than Hashem. That's the greatest pleasure, and that's talking to the animal soul. So back to the context of the conversation that Zichah is having, and therefore, the first conversation of Adam bringing names, bringing spiritual source into the physical animal, in Avodah, in the micro, it means that every single day we should try to explain to our Nefesh Abahamas, to our animal soul, its own source on high, namely the angels, and they're in love with God. And therefore, it too should love God. And then there's going to be column B, which is going to be the personal application, the micro of, of, of Sinai, of breaking the barrier, and not just bringing heaven to earth, but bringing God to earth. And that in our personal service means in addition to obviously doing mitzvahs, which is all divine stuff, but in terms of our personal self-betterment, that the animal soul gets in touch not just with its supernal animal, 
when it gets in touch with the divine soul, where the animal starts to appreciate the divine soul's opinion, which is done through mitzvahs, where the animal has develops a taste, not for a good gishmak, and it's convinced that Hashem is gishmak, but it develops a taste for bittel, for nothingness, for nullification. It starts to appreciate the way the divine soul thinks. I don't know how to do that, but that's, I think, what the Rebbe is saying. And the Rebbe gives an example, and this, I think, is the level of a tzaddik, that uh, when a person eats food, they're drawn to the nutrients or to the pleasure of the food on a physical level. The nishama is drawn to the godly spark that it wants to elevate. By a tzaddik, the two go hand in hand. Apparently, a tzaddik is able to also enjoy a meal, especially Shabbos. It's a mitzvah to eat a meal. You have to have pleasure. How did tzaddik have pleasure? And it has to have physical pleasure. It can't just be pleasure for the nishama. Then you didn't do the mitzvah of Onik Shabbos. Onik Shabbos means physical pleasure. The answer is apparently, and the Rebbe says it briefly here from the previous Rebbe, that apparently by these, by these type of people, these type of nishamas, tzaddikim, the physical pleasure that they, so to speak, taste in the body is, is influenced, and not just influenced, completely transformed by the spiritual pleasure. The neshama has pleasure. It's looking for divine spark. It's a pleasure of purpose. And that is so deep. And, and, and the, 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 the neshama, the animal soul, and the divine soul are so integrated, so transformed, that the animal soul says, this is fantastic. I just have elevated a spark. It's delicious. I don't know what this means. This is, I don't think this is for, for most people, but the Rebbe is teaching us this concept. And I guess the Rebbe is saying that ultimately, uh, deep down, we, we, we all have it. But bottom line, coming down, so what did the Rebbe just do now? So we presented so far three steps in the Sikha. I'm recapping because it's a very deep Sikha and it's also a very Gishmaka Sikha. So the first part of the Sikha is illuminating, demystifying the conversation that Hashem had with the angels about Adam naming the animals that is able to connect heaven to earth. I'm using the words pointedly, not God to earth, heaven to earth, the spirituality, the source of earth, and to be able to bridge that gap into the physical. The second part of the Sikh is the conversation that Hashem had with the angels about Moshe Rabbeinu and the Jewish people, that they're not able to go further and bridge God, divinity, creator, infinity, with physical, which is Torah Mitzvah. And what is the third part of the Sikh? In Avodah, you and I within ourselves, we do both of these things. We carry on both conversations with the angels, hopefully every single day. One is the lower level. We get our animal soul excited about Yiddishkeit by virtue of telling it its own source is lofty angels whose pleasure, these giant animals, aha, what is pleasurable? Hashem. So the animal soul says, okay, let me try it. That's what the previous Rebbe said that the, if the Baltaimis, the people who know how to be indulgent, who appreciate self-indulgence, would know the gishmak of learning chassidus, or how delicious it is, they would drop the physical pleasures and come and learn chassidus. But then he said that in order to appreciate chassidus, a person has to let go of some of the other indulgences. A person is totally indulgent in the physical, very hard to appreciate chassidus. But the previous Rebbe was trying to make the point that chassidus is delicious. You enjoy physical, you enjoy pleasure? Try this! And I think that's along the lines of this, of this uh, Torah, or of this conversation. So again, I, I I digress. So 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 the uh, so the the, the 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 third part of the sicha, meaning to point out that avoda, um, that number one, we have that uh, that that conversation with the animal soul, telling it its source, and in that way inspiring it to be to love Hashem. 
And that's a reflection of the conversation that God, of, of Adam naming the animals. And the second thing we should do is train the animal soul to be influenced and unite with the godly soul, not with the animal above, but with the godly soul within it, which is infinitely greater. And how do you do it? Through mitzvahs, through Torah, or if you're a tzaddik, uh, through the aforementioned uh, developing a taste for elevating uh, God's uh, purpose. Okay. So that is fantastic. What else? So the Rebbe comes along and now it says, you told me about two conversations that we have uh, with Hashem and the angels, two conversations that we're going to have with our own animal. Why do we need both? If we have the loftier one, why do we need the lower one? Once a Yid, once Yidin were able to break the barrier and bring God to earth, why do we also have to worry about bringing heaven to earth? And the same thing in the, in the micro. Once I'm able to connect my animal soul with my divine soul, why am I busy training my animal soul about its own yichis, about its own source? It's a much greater accomplishment. Just like Sinai is a far greater accomplishment than naming the animals with, with some divine energy that's in the spiritual realms. Spiritual realms, we're touching God. That's sort of the inferred question by the end of the sikh, the second half of the sikh. The Rebbe says that even though that second step is much greater than the first, there's a plus in the first two. Even though it's much greater to connect the animal to the divine soul, to connect the physical world to Hashem as per sign, and then just bringing the animal to its source. However, uh, there is a plus in that first approach. And why so? So I'm going to present it by an analogy of two teachers, which are brought many times in the Sikhs and in Hasidus. It's not brought in this Sikha specifically, but I think it clarifies it. Many times in Hasidus and the Rebbe Sikhs, especially in volume 15, the Rebbe uses the analogy, famous Hasidic analogy, that there are two types of student-teacher relationships. The first is a lower-level student, doesn't have such a brilliant mind, can't comprehend the brilliance of the teacher. It's beyond him. However, he has the ability to pick up the tools and the ideas and the principles the teacher gives him, and now he can study on his own. The second student has a much bigger capacity. He's able to appreciate the lofty ideals, the brilliant wisdom of the teacher. He doesn't know then, though, how to integrate it and apply it to new circumstances, new ideas, new applications, new subjects. No. He only knows what he got from the teacher. But what he got, he knows. Which student is greater? So Hasidus talks about it a lot, but there's a plus and minus in each. The second student is clearly a much loftier level of intelligence. He's discussing ideas that are way beyond. He can understand the teacher. The first guy can't. Conversely, though, the first guy integrated it. Whatever he has, which might be much less, but he has it, it's him. Whereas the second student, he's merely a recipient. Now, in Hashem's plan of Dira he wants the world to unite with Hashem. He wants the world to be ultimately revealed that it's one with its creator. So he wants both of these things. He wants the teacher to be manifest. He wants Hashem. He wants infinity to be manifest in the world. However, he wants it to become part of the world's thinking. So on one hand, he prefers that second student. He wants the student that can manifest, that can, that can appreciate teacher, infinity. But he also wants a student who will get it, who will own it. He wants in our Aveda, we have both of these columns. 
the when we work with the animal soul and just tell it about its source and tell it that it itself can appreciate Hashem. We're that first student. We're talking low levels. We didn't talk about God. We didn't talk about bittle, nullification, and touching affinity. We just talked about what the animal likes. But we, we, we brought out its talent, its juices. You want to know what you really want? Look at the supernal animals. So you are, you, are, you are teaching. This is the student who gets it, who can apply, who understands the principles, who now owns the thought process, even though that thought process is in a much lower level. In this Avaida, the person has not graduated his Nefesh Abahamas, his animal soul, but he's, he's living an animal soul-centric existence. But that animal soul-centric existence is, is, is very refined. It's excited like an animal, like an animal soul, but it's excited about Hashem, about mitzvahs, because it discovered how delicious it is. So it's lowly on the one hand, but it's very integrated. It's very real. It's very genuine. It's very much you. But it's something lacking because it's lowly. You didn't graduate the self. In Yiddishkeit, the ultimate goal is to touch God, which is only done through graduating self. So that's why we also have the other column. We have the godly soul. The godly soul knows any bavadeh. That's all it is. The godly soul is, you know, there's nothing beside the shrimp. Godly soul knows that, feels it, is it. And when we're able to do the second column, that the animal soul connects with the godly soul, now we accomplished, that's like the second student who hears this brilliance, excuse me, who hears the brilliant ideas from the teacher, and uh, maybe he can't integrate it and apply it to his knowledge base, but he's able to appreciate it. And that's when he does a mitzvah. He's an animal soul, he's self-centered, whatever he is, he is what he is, but he's touching divinity. And therefore we need both. We can't skip steps. We can't just say, just give me the godly soul and I should just live a life doing the mitzvahs and touching the divine, and why do I need this whole that we talked about with the blessings of Shaman, understanding and appreciating my animal soul source. Why can't we bypass that? We seemingly be accomplishing much greater. Yeah, we're like the student who's hearing brilliant ideas, but we don't really own any of those ideas. The person is ignoring his animal soul and following his godly soul. Maybe the godly soul is impacting the animal soul, but the animal soul per se is not transformed. Whereas if you turn around, and you point out to the animal soul that it itself, on its essence, on its core, on its, uh, on its source, its greatest indulgence is to touch Hashem. You made him a student. You made him connected to Hashem. But then you have the plus of the other. So therefore, you need both columns. Then the end of the Sikhah, the Rebbe comes along and shows that ultimately we combine both columns. This gets very, very deep. I'm just touching on it. This is something that I talks about a lot in his Mahmurim, but combining both cows. Here we have it all neatly packaged. Our Aveda with our animal soul is lower, but it's more us. Our Aveda with our godly soul leading the way is much higher, but it's less us. And together, somehow we get the package. The Rebbe says in the end that really we combine both. How so? Ultimately, let's talk about that first column. The animal soul is introduced to its source, and it's inspired by its source to connect to Hashem. But the truth is, the real ultimate source of the animal soul is not the angels on high, not some spirituality, some heaven, 
but a creation. Ultimately, the animal soul, real source, is higher than, so to speak, the godly soul source. How can that be? The godly soul is from Attilus, from God. The animal soul is higher. So it's explained in Hasidus that ultimately, there, there are things in this world that are lower and really have a higher source than things which seem higher. In the hierarchy of creation, the human is the highest, and then there's animal, plant, and animate. But we see that one lives off the other. The higher lives off the lower. Humans use animals for life and for other things. Animals use the plants. Plantation uses the, the earth, the inanimate. How can you live off something that's lower than you? So Hasidus says, really, in source, it's higher. In the ultimate source. So how did it fall so low? Aha! There's a principle that that which is loftier falls to the lowest place. If I put a rock on a wall, halfway up it'll fall so much on the wall. If I put it higher, it'll fall further away. The higher it comes, the lower it falls. It's explained in Chassidus that when we say this hierarchy, that man is highest and then lower, 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 we're talking the world of Tikkun. We're talking the world of Atzillus, where God made an organized world, where God prepared for creation by shining his light through the prisons of the ten sephirot. So we have the ten vessels and the lights. And this was a precursor to God creating uh, the world, creation. Because from infinity itself, the world wouldn't be able to connect. The world's a finite existence where everything has its measure and its beginning and its end. And therefore, so to speak, in order for Hashem to create a world that will connect to its source, Hashem, through Timtsum, what have you, shined his light in a tikkun fashion. Ten lights, ten vessels, and everything adds up. And from those ten comes the ten utterances of creation and the ten commandments and all the, uh, the energies of the creation and of them itself, the seven emotions, which is seven lights of the world, the seven days of the week and the seven emotions and the seven millennia, etc., etc. And therefore, every single particle of creation is an extension of those ten sephirot. And But those ten sephirot, we call them the world of Tikkun. But there's a higher world that preceded it called Tohu, chaos. What does this mean in a nutshell? So the language is that in in Tikkun, the vessels contain the lights in a comfortable way. In Tohu, in chaos, the vessels shattered. One way of understanding this is that, that vessels and lights can be words and ideas. A person can have ideas, but in order to understand it, he has to be able to express it in words and break it down. Sometimes if you talk, listen to somebody really, really smart, they're saying all kinds of ideas. When you walk away, you're not sure what they said because there was a lot of light, but not a lot of vessels. You're not sure if they said one thing or five things. And, and, and that's, not, that's not something that you can digest. God wanted the world to exist in an organized fashion, a limited fashion, to prepare for our world. So he created the world of Tikkun where the lights fits the vessels and nothing busts, everything's good. All these lofty spiritual ideas, so to speak, can be expressed in the appropriate vessels and the light shines onto the world and you live happily ever after. However, before that, God did another experiment called the world of Tohu, of chaos, which is hinted right in the Torah in the second verse. The world was Tohu. And what was it? God shown at that pre-creation, so to speak, whatever that means, his infinite light. Because remember, the goal is Hashem wants to give his whole self. So he's shown his infinite light and the vessels busted. It's like a teacher. It's like a person who's, uh, who, who, who meditates in lofty ideas that are beyond the mind. They can go nuts. It never happened to me, but apparently it happens. Uh, this is the stories in the Gemara with some of the great sages who, who meditated on lofty ideas and lost their mind or lost their lives. 
So imagine a person who is going to that level. The truth is that it's, it's, it's possible even to imagine this on a human level. You talk to some really smart professors and they look absent-minded. They look a little weird. Perhaps that's connected. I don't know. It's, I've, never, I've never tried this. But apparently there's a place where there's so many ideas floating around and so much going on that, the, that it's hard to contain it. Parenthetically, a few times the, I remember the Rebbe expressing himself that he said something and he was misunderstood. And the reason is because the mind was going so quickly that it was hard to contain it in the best. But the analogy that Chassidus gives, try to understand the, the vessels of a toyu, the, the, these sephirot, chaos that busted, and those shards fell down. And now the lower is really higher. Animals are really lower. They really have a higher source than man. The same thing inanimate, et cetera, et cetera. The analogy is of this, of this idea of a person exposing himself to tremendous wisdom, which is beyond his capacity. And he goes, Mishra. So what does the person do? He starts saying words, but the words are not organized. It's like a person in delirium. He's saying lofty ideas, but no one knows what's going on. However, so this can be a wasted exercise. This is a brilliant mind, but it's almost like he lost his mind because the ideas can't be contained and he's saying all kinds of words and he's, it's, it's one big gibberish. It's one big word salad. Comes along a brilliant chacham and walks into the room. Everyone else in the room is dismissing this guy. He's hacking the Chinese. What's he talking about? He, he, he's not making any sense. Throw him out. He's a fool. Comes along a brilliant person, another brilliant person, and he says, wait a minute, wait a minute. This guy is saying things that you would never discover if he's learned for a thousand years. It's just that it's too lofty. So he doesn't know how to express it. And maybe he's a little confused because it's so lofty. Let's take everything he said, and then we will reword it, and we will reorganize it, and we will find deeper messages. And that is an analogy that Hasidus gives of our Aveda, of uh, elevating the sparks, etc. That what? That Hashem was that great teacher who gave these lofty ideas and the vessels busted. The student went nuts. So what happened? Everything fell down to the ground. And we're left with a, 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 a world where the divine light is, is all mixed up. You can't see the creator within creation. It's all hidden, all the sparks. We don't know where the good sparks, or the bad sparks. It's one big mess. It's one big maze, one big mess. Comes along Teda and says, it's not a mess. There's infinite light in creation. In the lowest levels of creation, even more so than in the loftier levels. And through Tater and Vitzus, in the low levels, in the physical and in the animals, we elevate it to its source. And which source? Much, much greater. So this is just a little taste on the concept of the greater light of Tohu. Comes along the Rebbe and says, and the Rebbe says, you see it. How sometimes you see how the lower is rooted in the higher. So, for example, animals are lower than humans, and that's why they are uh, uh, they are subservient to humans. One person can direct hundreds of cattle, who, if they would realize that their strength, they can run them over in two seconds, <clears throat> because by nature they are subdued because they're lower. Says Chassidus, really in source, they're subdued because they're higher. They have the concept of bittel. They have a whole different level of bittel. Of nullification because of their lofty source in the higher world of Tohu. It manifests in a lowliness, but in source it's even greater. The Rebbe uses the same thing in a Kabbalistic way. He brings down that uh, the Rebbe Marash, that Adam, um, man, is the gematria, the numerical of the word Ma, 45. That's the gematria of Aleph, Dalad, man. Ma is the key word. Ma means bitl. Ma is, is, is the magic we're all looking for, right? 
Moses said, Nachnuma, what am I? Ma is total nullification. Where one is is one with Hashem. It's a target, it's a level of Moshe Rabbeinu, it's beyond, it's perfection. And Adam, the person, is the, the miracle of the word ma, which means the person has the capacity, the divine soul, the human soul within us, to connect to that truth. We're ma, we're nothing. Whereas Behema is not the miracle of ma. Behema is the miracle of 52, and it means something else. It says the Rebbe Maharash, I believe, that it's brought down in Kabbalah, that Behema can also be read Burma. It contains Ma. Behema contains the concept of Bithal. This lofty ideal. And in fact, it's explained that Behema has the word Ma more explicitly than man. Man only has it through Gematria the miracle, which means only hinted. It doesn't say it explicitly. Where in Behema, it's explicit. It says, what is Behema? Take the word divided into Burma. It contains Ma, this Bithal. Because ultimately, it, it comes from a loftier source. However, the Rebbe says, just like we needed Adam and Adam to call the names, to draw down this light from the lofty spiritual to the physical. And then we needed Matan Torah to draw from the infinity to the thing. Um, the Rebbe Maharash in his discourse, says the Rebbe, revealed this concept that the behemoth, Bama, that it comes from a greater source and it's an even greater bridge. And this becomes greater than the first two. It's a limited accomplishment to draw down the angel level to the animal because it's just creator, creation to creation, spiritual to physical. It's a limited accomplishment. Sinai is a much greater. You're bringing from, from God to the world. However, remember we said that there's something lacking in that because then the world did not reveal God's power within itself. It's only God gifting the world his truth. In Avayda, that means my godly soul is elevated my animal soul. My animal soul uh, doesn't have it. Comes along the Rebbe Maharaj. And this is Hasidus. And reveals that the animal soul source is ultimately much greater even than the godly soul because it comes from this lofty level of Tikkun, of Tohu, of the divine chaos, and therefore is able to be integrated. And what we have in the end, we have the, the infinite light of the chaos, in, we have the source of the animal soul brought down within the human animal. And that becomes the ideal of our service of Hashem. So just to sum it up, we have three levels of our service of Hashem. One is to have the human animal identify with its source so that its pleasure seeking should look in the right place, should look for divine pleasure, for pleasure from the divine. But that's only one level because that's very uh, self-centered. Then we have when the animal soul identifies with the godly soul and it connects to the concept of Bittal, that's much greater. It's the second student who able to understand the infinity of the teacher. But the problem with that is that it's not its own, it's getting it from the other teacher. The loftier level is when the animal, when, when, when the uh, Nefeshuli kiss, the Rebbe explains, the Nefeshuli kiss, who is an embodiment of the concept of Ma of Bittal. Is able to explain the animal soul, its source, and not its source in the world of the angels, its source in the in divinity, its source in divinity that precedes uh, the, the, the source of the godly soul, so to speak. And then the animal soul has both. It has the actual infinity and it has it in and of itself by its own definition. To use the analogy of the teacher and the student, the student understands the lofty ideas of the teacher, 
but it's totally integrated within the student and the student knows how to apply it and use it in all other ways. And the Rebbe uh, is, is says this, those are familiar with the famous Sikha of Chavkas Nisan, when the Rebbe talks about Mashiach, the Rebbe says it's to bring the lights of Tohu, of chaos, into the vessels of Tikkun, which is very much along these same lines, or the way the Rebbe finishes this Sikha. In plain English, what does the Rebbe want of us? The Rebbe wants that we should serve Hashem, not just with our godly soul, but with our animal soul. That's a big part of Chassidus. Love Hashem with all your heart. But not just with your animal soul, that your animal soul from a place of ego and a place of self-indulgence is appreciating the sweetness of God. But that it ultimately understands that what is it ego coming from? It's a reflection of God's ego. The fact that that the, that, the, that, the, that, the, that there's a concept of yeshus in the human animal is because it's a reflection of the super yeshus as the Rebbe calls yesho amiti, the real yesh, the real ego, super ego, and therefore ultimately our own personal ambitions and our own personal pleasure and own personal thing, if we use it for the mission, all of these are really just mirrors of the real truth that there's nothing but Hashem, I, how does my animal know that? An animal is such a selfish being, but not in its super source. And the super source is an infinite light. It's just a little bit confused. The code's got a little screwed up. And we clarified, and this is what the Rebbe is doing with Hasidus and quoting the Rebbe Marash, etc. Elevating the animal to its real source. And therefore, I think that in, in, in plain English instructions, the Rebbe is saying, use your your, your talents, your abilities, whatever it is that your humanity brings to the table, your ego, your, your talents. The Rebbe didn't discourage people from using their talents. The Rebbe asked the yeshiva boys, for example, to write Torah scholarship essays. This was never done by Hasidim. Because you're writing Torah scholarship, you're, 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 you're building on the ego. And the Rebbe said, at the end of the day, it's coming a time for Mashiach where there's really nothing besides Hashem, including the human ego. The ego is just a reflection of its real source, which is the Yeshamiti, Hashem. And therefore, all physicality, including the physicality of self, including the animal soul, is really one with that ultimate source. And then we end up with both pluses, the infinity of Hashem, and it's totally integrated within us and in our world.